From Baltimore, Maryland, this is The Stoop Sessions, a One Hope podcast. Join us for conversations about ministry on The Stoop. Learn more about our work at www.onehope.gives. Welcome back to The Stoop Sessions. My name is Joel Kurz. I'm Stephanie Greer. I'm Eric Hugh. And we have on our podcast today a friend, Matt Martins. Mm-hmm. Hey, thanks for having me. It's Welcome. a rainy stoop today. It is raining. It's raining. It's raining. We are indoors. (laughs) Very raining. So Matt has written a book that we want to talk about today. The book is yet to be released, uh, and so we're excited to to read it. I've been able to read a couple chapters, early chapters, as you were writing it. You got to connect. I guess you always have connections. (laughs) I sent him a couple chapters early on. (laughs) They've been edited since then, but he's he's gotten a preview. They were really good. Um, But the book is called Reforming Criminal Justice. A Christian proposal, and I think considering our context and the context of many of our listeners, it's a subject that is extremely important. In Baltimore City, for example, uh, we have 9% of Maryland's population that live in Baltimore. However, we have 40% of the state prison population. Uh, Just think about that. Um, We've got disparity even within the city. So I, I, I read this recent study on mass incarceration in Baltimore City, and um, a third of the people in prison come from 10 of Baltimore's 55 neighborhoods. Mm. Wow. So when you think of, all right, we've got 40% of the prison population from Baltimore, even though Baltimore represents just 9%. And out of that 40%, the majority are from 10 Baltimore neighborhoods. Just think about that. Yeah. Now, our neighborhood is one of those, yeah. 10. Just a uh, uh, little, little further picture here. In the Upton Druid Heights neighborhood, which is our neighborhood, according to the study, we've got about 175 people from our community that are currently in prison. Uh, our neighborhood is about 9,000 people. If you go over one neighborhood, which is twice the size... So they've got 17,000 in the Midtown community. Hmm. Uh, we're looking at 45 people in prison. Wow. And so hmm. according to the study, we, we would be eight times more likely to be imprisoned coming from this neighborhood. And of course, in our neighborhood, we've got a 60% poverty level. Yeah. Um, uh, what is it? What's the stat? Third of the third graders are not proficient in their reading level, right. which contributes to cycles of violence. Uh, now, mass incarceration, Matt, is only... a probably a part of your work, but uh, that's just a little glimpse of our context and why I think the idea, uh, the, the question of a Christian uh, reformed proposal to criminal yeah. justice is intriguing. Yeah, intriguing and needed. Uh, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your current work? Sure. So I've been a lawyer for uh, be 27 years and a couple months here. I graduated from law school at the University of North Carolina. I've held a bunch of different jobs as a lawyer. I I was a law clerk at the U.S. Supreme Court for William Rehnquist. And uh, shortly after leaving law school, I've been a defense lawyer. Then I was a prosecutor. I was a political appointee in the criminal division in the Bush administration under John Ashcroft. Um, I've actually been a line line federal prosecutor. Um, And then I've been a defense lawyer again for uh, almost 10 years now. Been a Christian for, as I say, I, I can't remember a time when I didn't believe. Um, came to faith, thankfully, at a young age with a pastor uh, as a father. Mm. Um, a Christian family, siblings who are all believers and following Jesus. Been married for uh, 29 years mm. uh, this year. Three kids. Live in Washington, D.C., member of Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Such a succinct bio, you can right. tell. It's a lawyer. If that was me, I'd probably yeah. <laughs> be a couple circles. But yeah, anyway, you know, yeah, that's can, sweet. It's good to hear. Yeah. So, so you wrote a book, Reforming Criminal Justice. I did. Um, what have you observed in your work that kind of um, led you in this direction to write this book? Yeah. So maybe give a little. Maybe I should give a little bit of overview of the book. So, you know, I was driving in this morning and I saw I was coming down Martin Luther King Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. Sort of reminded me this Tuesday is the 55th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel Mm. in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, There's a plaque uh, outside room 306 where he was slain that reads, 
uh, quoting Genesis, here comes that dreamer. Let's slay him and see what becomes of that dream. Mm. Um, and I think when we think of the dream of Martin Luther King Jr., we often think of, you know, the dream from his, I have a dream speech, right, right that my two small children. Um, but, you know, I think what people don't know is the degree to which uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was active in the area of criminal justice because the historical fact is that the criminal justice system in the United States was used not only for justice, it was used for justice, but it was used as a tool of oppression. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's historical fact. It was used, and I write about this in my book, to reverse the effects of the Civil War. Yeah. It was used through convict leasing, through the over-prosecution of blacks and the under-prosecution of whites. Um, it was used uh, as a tool of injustice. Um, and, you know, it's, it's sort of amazing that in, in uh, 1968, just months after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, a president of the United, a presidential candidate, ran on a political platform of opposing the civil rights movement, and he won. Mm. And yeah. he was the president in that first term, the year I was born. So, I mean, this is not ancient history. Wow. Right. You know, sure. this is my lifetime. And so the real question is, you know, as the national discussion has emerged around criminal justice, how should we think about this as Christians? You know, what is the... What are the facts about how the system operates and what is the theological framework that we should use to think about criminal justice? And so what I propose in my book is that uh, Jesus answers this question numerous times in the Gospels where he tells us that the whole law is summed up in the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, And that when he refers to law, he's referring to the Old Testament law, which has in it uh, provisions with regard to dealing with crime. Yeah, and he sure. says that that law um, is a law of love. It's, yeah. it's founded on love. And so what I argue in my book is that the a just criminal justice system is a system that is designed to love all our neighbors, both the crime victim and the criminally accused. Mm-hmm. We don't yeah. get to choose between the two neighbors and love the That's one right. who's more lovable. We have to love them both. It's a universal command to love all of our neighbors as ourselves. In fact, the whole point when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, in which he invokes this uh, reference to loving our neighbor as ourselves, he chooses (laughs) someone who's extremely unlovable in that culture uh, Mm. to remind people of their obligation to love. He invokes the Samaritan, um, who was among the most despised in that culture, just to put a finer point on that we must love all our neighbors. And so I, I try to address in the book, what, is, what does it mean to love both the crime victim and the criminally accused? Can we love them both? Don't they, don't, aren't they a conflict? What wow. is the way that you love mm. both of them? Don't you have to pick? Isn't, isn't, mm. isn't it A or B? Isn't it yeah. the state versus the defendant? And don't we have to sort of pick sides? And right. what I argue is that we, not only do we not have to pick sides, we can't pick sides. That, in fact, we don't have to, we can love them both. That loving them both at bottom means being accurate. It means convicting the right person and punishing them in the right way. That both loves crime victims and Mm. loves the criminally accused. It loves crime victims by protecting them, past victims and future victims from crime. And it loves the criminally accused by ensuring accuracy both in the determination of guilt and in the punishment imposed so that that person will be corrected and ultimately, hopefully, welcomed back into the community as a productive member, and that we do, um, we do no good for for crime victims or the criminally accused if we if we design a system that convicts innocent people, mm. that doesn't convict guilty people, right. and then Im- it disproportionately, either too leniently or too severely, right. punishes wrongdoers. Our goal ultimately is to bring them back into fellowship and, and back into the community mm. again. Um, to, to make them productive members of society. It's sort of what Augustine refers to as a harsh kindness or a severe benevolence, right? Mm. Where the severity is not just, I want to hurt you because you hurt me. That's not, that's not loving. Right. It's, I want to punish you so that you will change um, and so that we can welcome you back. Yeah. Loving the, the victim and the perpetrator. Loving them both, right? Both our neighbors. And be, that's because they're both our neighbors. They're both our neighbors. Yeah. You, you had used an analogy with me once to explain your work early on uh, of a pie. If, perhaps your dad gave you a yeah, pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, so, you know, I, I, 
I've used the example of John Rawls. If you want to talk about John Rawls, I've used the example of my dad with a pie. Um, you know, growing up, if there was like a piece of pie or a piece of cake, you know, he'd say to, um, to one of us, you know, you get to cut, he'd say to my brother, and Matt, you get to pick first. Mm. And uh, when the cutter is going to pick second, the cutter is going to try to design a system that loves them both. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> right? Exactly. He's going to try to design a system that is fair to both. And, you know, what I've tried to, what I've argued in my book is that that's sort of a helpful way to think about criminal justice. How would you design the system if you didn't know which piece of pie you were going to get? Mm. If you didn't, if, you know, how would you design it if you were picking second? Yeah. How would you design it if you didn't know what your lot in life would be, right? It's That's easy right. to say, you know, I want to be tough in crime when I live in a suburban neighborhood and the chances that I'll ever be a criminal mm. uh, or criminally accused, mm-hmm. whether or not a criminal. Um, you know, it's easy to be tough on crime then, right. you know, but would you be so tough on crime if you knew that your life was one where you would daily interact with police and you might be falsely accused? How would you design the system if you didn't know which of those two you'd be? Mm. Because those that are writing criminal law would be people who generally assume that they're going to be the victim, not the perpetrator. Yeah. I mean, if you asked me, you know, like, I mean, my life, you know, what's the, what's more likely in my life? I'm more likely to be crime victim, even though that's pretty low, right? Than criminally accused. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and it, we all, at least we think that way. That's what even we, if that's what we think, whether yeah. or not it's true. Right. Yeah. So that's what I would think. And there's other people who will kind of feel it from the opposite, depending yeah. on what community or background true. they live in. And so, you know, what we can do is allow our own life circumstance to dictate how we look at the topic instead of loving neighbors who are not like us, loving Samaritans. Well, would you say, is this one of the reasons why you wanted to become a lawyer? Like just seeing... I don't, I don't think, I don't, no, I mean, here's, it's kind of a funny, you know, what's interesting is I was probably like the law and order guy in law school, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, if you think back, if I think back to sort of, if you ask people who knew me in law school, yeah. um, you know, my thinking on criminal justice has definitely changed over the years. Mm. And I think that that's born of experience. Mm, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I write in my book that the, the single, the, the moral, the, the greatest moral issue on which I've changed my mind in my life is the death penalty. And I say that as somebody who's participated in putting people on death row. Um, uh, over time, I feel like I was overcome by the facts. Um, it's not that I, I ha- it's not that I, I understand, and I explain this in the book, that, cr- that, that scripture um, deems it moral to uh, have a death penalty under certain circumstances. Um, and I think it's the under certain circumstances mm-hmm. that I think we fall short on, and I, I discuss that. Yeah. But, you know... I, I wouldn't say that this, I, I wasn't the, you know, um, you know, wild-eyed do-gooder uh, who went to law school to change the world. I didn't even intend to write a book. Uh, uh, it's kind of a long story how all that happened. Yeah. Do you lean toward criminals are getting away with too much? Or do you lean toward criminals are over-imprisoned? And So I'd say both are true. Um, so just to talk, you were talking about statistics at the outset. So something like, and it fluctuates a little every year, but something like only 50% of murders are solved in the United States. Yeah. There's a lot of murder happening that's not uh, ever resolved. Big problem in Baltimore. Yeah, and if you talk about sort of just serious crime generally, the statistics on the clearance rates are very low, like sub 50%, well under 50%. If you talk about murder, rape, robbery assault, kind of take all those together, combine, the the clearance rates are very low. So we have a lot of crime not getting cleared, which is unloving to victims because people who commit crimes who aren't punished are probably going to do it again because they've not been punished. And it's unloving to the people doing crimes because they are engaged in a lifestyle that ultimately will destroy their soul. Mm. And we are not stopping them. We are not telling them stop. Yeah. Um, so that is happening, but at the same time, since 1989, 3,000, something like 3,580 people have been exonerated after having been convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was on the phone tonight, this week for an hour with a man who I've become friends with, who was just released from prison last year after 39 years in prison for a murder mm-hmm. he did not commit. Yeah. Um, he's 59 years old. He was convicted at age 20 and, 19, and arrested in December of 1983, and was released in, December, in November of 2022. 
after 39 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. And his story, unfortunately, is not unique. And so both are true. And, and yeah. so we are being inaccurate in both directions and wow. thus failing to love in both directions. So this isn't a left versus right. This isn't R versus D. I'm not, I'm not writing a political book. I'm not writing a partisan book. I'm trying to write a theological book and talk about the facts as objectively as I can. So uh, when Christians pursue social justice at times, or even when I've talked about justice issues, a uh, common refrain is just preach the gospel. Mm. You know, let's, yeah. you know, when we look at our neighborhood, we look at our communities, cities, incarceration, whatever, yeah. um, the, the real issue is that people are sinners in need of a savior. And that's the mission that God has given to the, uh, the church. That's the message. So why is a Christian not just preaching the gospel, Matt? Well, that was the argument uh, made uh, against Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, so in his letter from Birmingham jail, he's responding to that very critique that he should stay out of social issues and just stick to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that it's so easily separated. And I fully recognize that uh, social justice is not the gospel, but social justice is an implication uh, of the gospel. For by grace are you saved unto good works. Mm, that's right. Um, you know, it's for a purpose. Uh, Peter says, um, you know, he writes to the elect, for not, you know, who were foreknown to God. Um, he writes to the elect and says, for that he says you were sanctified, you were saved, sprinkled with blood, for obedience. He says you were chosen, you were elect in First Peter one for obedience. Sure. Um, I was just I just recently preached a sermon down in Arlington, Texas on Genesis 18. It's a really interesting story. It's between the angels and God visiting Abraham and Sarah to tell them they're going to have a child and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in between there, as the angels and the Lord are heading out to head down to Sodom and Gomorrah, they pause and talk among themselves. And they say, should we tell Abraham what we're going to do down in Sodom? Mm-hmm. And, and, he, and they say, yeah, we're going to tell him because... He has been, um, because he has been chosen mm-hmm. to command his children after him mm-hmm. to walk in the ways of the Lord of righteousness and justice. So really interesting passage. So it, we're told that Abraham is chosen to tell his children something. We learn all the way later in Galatians that his children aren't his children. In fact, he didn't have any children, like biological children right. at that point. His children are us. If we're believers, we're told in, so, so we're told in Genesis 18 that God chose Abraham to command his children, meaning all the people in this room right now, and a lot mm. of the people listening to this podcast, yeah. God chose Abraham to tell you to do something, mm-hmm. to walk in the ways of the Lord of righteousness and justice. Right. And that phrase, righteousness and justice, Stephen Wellam at the Southern Baptist, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary has written a book saying that phrase righteousness and justice means social justice. When that phrase is used together in scripture, it means social justice. It means not like, I'm not talking about progressive. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about organizing a society in a just way. Mm. God chose Abraham to command his children in the faith, us, to do social justice. So th- th- this, this dichotomy of like just preach the gospel or just you know, stay away from social justice, you can't separate those two. That right. God's choosing us, whether you want to see this in Genesis 18 or in mm. 1 Peter or in Ephesians, the implication, the point of God choosing us is not just to declare us righteous, though it is that. Mm-hmm. It's to make us righteous. Mm. Sure. It's to have us be ethical people in our society, to be different, to be what we were created to be. Yeah. Right. Are you a theonomist? And if you're not, how is your view different than theonomy? Also, define theonomy. Yeah, so, 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 if I, I, so I understand theonomy as you use, I assume you're using the term to mean, do I believe that the Old Testament law is binding on us today and should be implemented in society? Mm-hmm. Or no. Christian law in general? Yeah, the answer is no. Um, I mean, you can read the Westminster, ba- Westminster Confession, you can read the London Baptist Confession. What, what those both explain is that the Old Testament law is not binding on us today, but is beneficial for its, quote, general equity is the term. In other words, we can look to it for principles, but it's not 
directly binding and should not be directly implemented today. But that's a different question from when should we in our in whatever government does and and people will differ on what government should do. Mm. That's a that's a that's the whole Christian nationalism debate. But whatever I I certainly believe that whatever government does it should do in accord with God's justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, criminal law is sort of the, the easiest example. And I hope we all believe that crime, you know, crime, sort of core crime, rape, robbery, murder, yeah. you know, should be um, punished. The question is sort of what does it mean to justly address, punish that type of crime? And that's what I'm arguing in my book is that that our only authority, government's only authority, comes from God. And that authority must be exercised in the image of God, yeah. according to his justice. That's what we see, in, what's really interesting in Genesis 1, is that you see the first conferral of authority. Genesis 1, God made man in his own image, in the image mm-hmm. of God made he them, male and female made he them, and he blessed them and said, you know, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth. So the only peop- the only creatures he gave dominion over the earth to were creatures he made in his image. Mm. The point being that the dominion has to be exercised by image bearers. The dominion has to be exercised in God's image. The the dominion, whatever authority we have over creation and ultimately over others, as we see in Genesis 9, has to be exercised by image bearers who are acting according to the image of God, who are acting according to God's justice. So how is it, would you say, that even among Christians... Um, some would cry out for what they see. Um, they'd say it's a pervasive injustice. And then on another extreme, some would say we need greater law and order. So how, how does that span across various groups? Yeah, I mean, again, I think folks will feel the effect. As I, I said, I think we have a problem both directions. We are both under-convicting under in some instances, mm-hmm. under-prosecuting, under-punishing. And we have instances when we're over-punishing either punishing the wrong people or punishing the right people too severely. Um, you know, just, just last year, the Mississippi Supreme Court upheld a life sentence uh, against a man who was convicted of possessing an ounce and a half of marijuana. You know, mm. There's no sense in which that's a, that's a proportional just sentence. So we, ha- we have it sort of going both ways. And, you know, and what I'm arguing is, and, and which of those we feel Again, back to my earlier point, is probably in, in influenced by our life circumstance, yeah. right? If, like right. You yeah, right. Like our experience may be that we live in a community where we see people wrongly convicted, or we see people un, un, unduly or excessively harshly punished, and so we'll feel that more. Um, other people will live in communities maybe where they know friends and neighbors who are crime victims, or some communities they'll see both. They'll see both. They'll 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 see friends and neighbors who are crime victims, and yet see, also see people who are unduly harshly punished. And so we'll tend to associate, I think, with the neighbor most like us. Mm. And what I'm trying to push people to associate with is um, the neighbor, the neighbor like us, and the neighbor not like us because we have to love all our neighbors as ourselves. That's good. Which goes both ways. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm not trying to write a, I'm not writing a partisan book. I'm not trying to pick sides. I'm not trying to say the left is right. I'm not trying to say the right is right. I'm trying to say, here's what scripture tells us. Here's what the facts are about how the system operates. And, uh, you know, let's think about with regard to each of those features of how the system operates. Let's think about um, whether that aligns with what Scripture tells us about justice. Yeah, even as I, I hear you, I think the ability to actually carry that out is such a has to be a Holy Spirit inspired kind of like Scripture says this, and this is what we're held to. I don't. I mean, we wouldn't be able yeah, to do that I mean, that's, on our own. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really. I mean, I open. I don't start with discussion of the justice system I start with you know almost 150 200 pages of theology you know starting with the gospel my first chapter is the gospel and social justice where I I start in Genesis 1 what does it tell us as I mentioned before about being created in the image of God and the authority to have dominion Um, and then sort of tracing that through about you know the gospel as I mentioned before and the implications for doing justice and then try to walk through what scripture tells us about justice 
what we're told over and over is that we are entitled to punish. God has ordained government to bear the sword. It's not only in Romans 13, but it's certainly in Romans 13, that God has ordained government. But we see that in Genesis 9, you know, where God uh, confers authority to Noah and his posterity to to punish force with force. That's right. Um, that's, that's not something I'm ashamed of to say that, that that's authorized. It's what God authorized for our good sure. um, in a fallen world. And the question, is, but what he's only authorized is to punish wrongdoers, right? Mm-hmm. Romans 13 says that God has ordained government. They're ministers of God, literally, you know, diakonos of God, you know, deacons of God. Sure. Um, to bear the sword against wrongdoers. That's an important limitation, against wrongdoers. I have no authority. You have no authority. I don't care what government, you know, our constitution, our declaration of independence says, you know, we the people. It's not we the people uh, who, who conferred authority. We think we, we conferred it on ourselves, the consent of the governed. God says, I gave it to you if you have it at all. Mm, right? Sure. Jesus says, all authority is in me. Right. Um, in the beginning, God. Yeah. All authority, this is an important point, all authority we have is derivative. It is derivative of God because God owns all authority. If, right. he's, if, he's, if, if I have any, it's only because he gave it to me. So I have to figure out, A, what authority did he give me, mm-hmm. if any? I'm not, in, I'm not in government today, so I don't actually have any authority to punish you. Um, but he has given government officials authority. But what authority has he given them? So that requires a couple que- that requires us to answer a couple questions like, who am I authorized to punish? For what? To what extent? Uh, on what proof? Right. All of those I have to sort out. It's not. It's too simplistic to say. Well, the Bible, Genesis nine or Romans thirteen. You know, we can implement the death penalty. Just to take an example. Well, we can. But there's more in Scripture than that. We got to get it right. Yeah. Yeah. Scripture is very clear about that. We got to get the right person uh, on the right proof. Just to take an example, Scripture is very clear, Old and New Testament, government and outside of government, in the church, discipline context, you cannot punish based on one witness. That's right. I mean, that is perfectly clear. You can't, you can't discipline a church member. That's right. You can't discipline an elder. You can't execute somebody. You mm-hmm. can't criminally punish someone. In the, I mean, over and over, this theme of on more than one witness keeps coming up. And that's a real issue in the United States today because we execute people. We have executed people. I'm not talking about prior to my lifetime. I'm talking about in right. my lifetime. I'm yeah. talking in the last 20 years. I'm talking about the last couple of years. Yeah. We've yeah. executed people on the, on the testimony of a single eyewitness. Mm. Interesting. Um, there's, there, that, is, that is a moral evil to do that because that is, that, is, that, is a, that is seizing power, seizing power that we were not given. Yeah. We were not given the power, the authority to punish people on the testimony of a single witness. That, is, that, that, that authority was never given to me as a human being by God. Sure. It wasn't given to any human being by God. And so if we're, if we're doing that, we are literally grabbing authority and trying to wrench it away from God that he did not give us. Yeah. Walk us through some of the injustices that somebody might face from a routine traffic stop uh, through the various legal channels that he or she will go through, on through sentencing, and why isn't everybody's experience the same? Yeah. So my book is less focused on policing and sort of the traffic stop part than it is on sort of once you're in the system. Okay. I, and I have a brother who's a police detective. He and I are talking about maybe we're going to do a reforming policing book uh, oh, sort of as a follow-up. A series. Yeah, maybe a series. We'll, we'll see whether we get there. Um, I got too many ideas in my head now, things I want to write about after doing the first one. But, but so let's talk about in the justice system once you're in. Like once you're charged. Okay. So somewhere, something like 94 to 97% of cases end in pleas. Guilty pleas. Mm. 94 to 97%, right? Mm-hmm. You, you probably wouldn't know that watching Law and Order. Because uh, nobody, you know, nobody writes a TV show about guilty pleas, right? right. <laughs> That's not going to make for you know best-selling or uh, high ratings. So we think of like trials as being like you get the chance to confront your accuser, and you know, there's this Perry Mason moment where the person's like, "You got me!" Like I didn't do it, you know, you didn't do it. But you know, the the, rea- the reality is most um, most 
cases, almost all cases, are resolved through guilty pleas. So you got to pause and ask yourself this. Why would anybody plead guilty? I mean, back up the Declaration of Independence. When we, we, we think it's about the Boston Tea Party, you know, taxation without representation. Yeah, yeah, it was about that. You keep reading down the Declaration of Independence. You know what one of the beefs they had with King George? No jury trials. That's one of their beefs in the Declaration mm. of Independence. No jury trials. In fact, the right to a jury trial is the only right that appears twice in the Constitution. Oh, wow. So it's in the original Constitution. There's a discussion of the right to the jury trial. And then when we added the Bill of Rights, we put it in again. Mm. Now, there's a sort of a, a academic discussion about why that is. I'm not going to really get into that. But it's in there twice. Like, this is a core element of the United States. You have a right to a trial by jury. The states put it in their constitutions in addition to the federal constitution. So if you have a right to a trial, why would you ever plead guilty? Why would anybody plead guilty? I mean, why not take my chance if I <laughs> roll the dice? Yeah. And the reason people plead guilty is because they're pressured to plead guilty. Okay. We punish people for exercising their right to a trial. Mm. Could you explain that? Yeah, so we tell people, you can have a trial, but if you have a trial and you lose your trial, we're going to punish you more. Oh, wow, yep, that's right. right. Now, now, just think about that. Imagine if we told people, you have a right to free exercise of religion, but if you exercise that right, I'm going to tax you more. Mm -hmm. I'm going to punish you more. You'd be like, no, 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 man, like... <laughs> I have a right to do that. That means you can't punish me right. for doing it. But somehow in the criminal justice system, we've concluded that we can punish you more if you, if you get convicted after trial than if you um, plead guilty. So if you're but innocent that, now, as long as you say I'm guilty, we're going to make a deal with you. Right. Yeah, so, here, so, here's, so here's practically how this works hmm. out. There's two things, there's sort of two or three things going on. Number one this, this, this plea, the part of the way we get people to plead guilty is through denying them bail. The second way is once we deny them bail, we deny them a speedy trial. And then if, if they go to trial, we tell them you're going to get punished more. So let me unpack that a little bit. So the U.S. Constitution, Eighth Amendment, says you have the right to, you know, you have the right to reasonable bail. The Supreme Court... Uh, up until 1987, uh, in a case called Salerno, the U.S. Supreme, everybody thought you could only be, really be denied bail if you were flight risk, right? The point of bail was to like get you to show up to trial. Um, and if you weren't really a flight risk, you were supposed to be able to get bail. But in 1987, the Supreme Court said, oh, no, no, if you're a danger uh, to the community, you can be denied bail. Now, query how they're going to know you're a danger to the community when you haven't been convicted of anything yet. But so they said, you know, but they said, so if you're like a danger, and in that case, it was like a, a mobster, you know, you can be held prior to trial. Okay. Um, but they said this should be a super rare circumstance. Well, sort of fast forward. So today, about 500,000 people are being held in the United States. Like today, roughly 500,000 people are being held in jail prior to trial about two-thirds of them for traffic offenses, minor property crimes, or drug offenses. Hmm. They haven't been convicted of anything. They've been, they've been charged with the traffic offense. They've been charged with dr some drug crime. They've been charged but not convicted of, of some property crime. Two-thirds of the 500,000. So somehow we went from you can hold mobsters <laughs> prior to trial. Okay, I get it. Or you know, terrorists to like a dude with a, a traffic offense. Mm. Um, and so, so, again, pause. What authority do I have to use the physical force of imprisonment against someone who's been convicted of nothing? What moral authority do I have to do that? Okay. Right? So that's question yeah. number one. You've got to answer yeah. that question. You can't just say, well, it's, it's good criminal. As a Christian, you can't just say, oh, that's good criminal justice policy. Mm. As a Christian, I have to say, what moral authority do I have to do that? Because otherwise, I'm just grabbing, I'm trying to grab God's authority and pull it away from him. He has the authority to do what he wants because he got perfect knowledge. But what authority do I have to hold someone by force prior to trial who's been convicted of nothing? So we hold people prior to trial. Then we have this promise in the Constitution, the Sixth Amendment of a speedy trial. 
So you, you probably think, well, speedy trial means like a couple months, right? Like right. I'll, I'll often be in jail. Okay, they're holding me, but like a couple months. How about a couple years? How about more than a couple years? How about like seven years? And I'm not making this up. I could give you cases in the last year or two from multiple states where people were held six, seven years prior to trial only to be acquitted wow. at trial. And possibly from something like a traffic offense? No, well, usually, no, you no, because there's another game there. I'll come to that okay. in a second. But no, this is like murder, like murder. held for right. six or seven years, goes to trial. Now listen, maybe those people were guilty and they, they were found not guilty because the prosecution sat so long that right. witnesses died, or maybe they didn't do it. All right. I know is somebody spent six years in prison having never been convicted of anything. Mm. And That's why does it take so long? Well, because the Supreme Court has said that the speedy trial is satisfied by like six or seven years. So again, I got to ask myself, what authority, what right. moral authority do I have as a Christian to ask my government to imprison someone for six or seven years who's been convicted of nothing and who is ultimately acquitted? But there's another game going on. Like, so let's take the traffic offense people get held. So, so you have, you're, let's imagine you're poor. You can't afford a lawyer. You get arrested for this traffic offense. You're appointed counsel. Appointed counsel in the United States are wildly overworked. Lots of data on this. American Bar Association has done studies across in state after state. Probably one third the number of public defenders that we need to actually competently handle the caseload. So you get appointed a, a, a lawyer. You're sitting in the can. You're waiting for your appointed lawyer to show up. Your lawyer can't come see you for three months. Yeah. Six months. Your lawyer shows up and says, good news. I got a plea agreement. Mm. You can get out today if you if plead, plead guilty. guilty. Or you can stay in this hellhole, mm. risk sexual assault, lose your apartment, have your kids thrown into foster care. Your call. Right. What are you going to... You can, so so we, we coerce people mm. into pleading guilty. Now, listen, maybe some of those people are guilty. Maybe most of them are guilty. But I don't, get to, I don't get to imprison most who are guilty. That's right. Back to Genesis 9 and Romans 13, I'm authorized to punish the guilty and no more. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so if I'm coercing guilty pleas out of people through uh, on these minor charges, and so lest you think I'm just sort of making up the, the risk that people are wrongly pleading guilty to things they didn't do. Remember I mentioned those 3,389 or 3,388 exonerations or 3,500, I forget, 30, or roughly 3,500 exonerations since 1989. You know what percentage of those were people who pled guilty? 20%. Wow. 20% of exonerations since 1989 are of people who pled guilty to mm. crimes they didn't commit. Mm. Yeah. Um, I, we know people are being coerced into pleading guilty to stuff they didn't do. We know as a fact that's happening. Of the first 250 DNA exonerations in the United States, 11% were people who pled guilty. Wow. Mm. We know as a scientific yeah. fact they didn't do it. Yeah. And they pled guilty. Mm. These are just serious crimes. Be why would people do that? Because they're looking at a, sy a system where I'm detained prior to trial. I could sit here for years I've got a lawyer who will show up whenever he's got time or he or she's got time because they got three times as many cases as they can handle. And when they finally show up, the prosecutor says, you can get out today or you can hang around and we'll get you a trial in a few years. Your call. It sounds like there's a logistical problem here as well. Like if, we, if everybody goes through the system appropriately, takes the trial, they're not pleading... Like, do we have the infrastructure to be able to, do we have enough courtrooms, enough judges, and enough attorneys? Yeah, right. Or is this like a logistical problem as well? It's like, we just can't handle this load and we've got to figure this out and yeah, kind of so, cut some of this off. So that is a, a practical question I frequently get. I have a couple responses to that. We have the money for what we want to have the money for. That's a good point. Right? Um, if I got to choose between parks or doing justice to people, guess what scripture tells me I got to pick? Mm. Mm. So, so, so let's first of all start with, again, I only have authority as a human being mm. to exercise that authority in the, in according to God's image, according to his justice. So if, if I'm going to punish people, I got to do it God's way, which means if I got to spend more money, I got to spend more money. 
Um, number so so number one, like I, the moral argument can't be overcome by practical practical. Right, I mean, right. at least it can't. We can't just lightly, yeah. um, sort of just say, well, you know, it costs too much. There's no way, right? Now, I I think Scripture is also realistic about, um, you know, we we are people of limited resources, right? I I, I don't have. Uh, unlimited resources. And so, but I think what that requires us to do is a couple of things, sort of prioritize what we want to spend our money on, prioritize what we want to criminalize. Um, we don't have to criminalize everything that we criminalize and, and thus use up uh, money um, on things that we don't have to pursue. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm not, let me also say, I'm not saying that that means every case has to go to trial, right? This is one of the common objections. Well, if only 5% of the cases are going to trial, then we need 20 times as many judges, 20 times as many prosecutors. The answer to that is there's actually been some interesting ideas floated about what we can do to still encourage people to plead guilty um, in cases that are open and shut, right? Like, I, it's one thing to say, if you plead guilty, we'll reduce your sentence from 12 months to 11 months, so if you think like, listen, there's a foregone conclusion, I'm going to get convicted, I might as well get the minor additional benefit. That's very different than saying, you go to trial, you're going to get six years, you go to, you plead guilty, you're going to get six months, mm-hmm. right? That's going to create a very different type of pressure. There's one thing between a mild incentive for people whose cases are open shut to plead guilty as opposed to coercing people. That's right. There's also been some ideas raised about ways in which we could provide a check to ensure that the cases that we are, that are pleading guilty are accurate. So like I, one um, person, a friend of mine who's been thinking about this a lot said we could do a system where every, one out of every 10 guilty pleas or one out of every 20 guilty pleas, the judge says, nope, we're going to take that one to trial. Uh, and if he gets convicted at trial, he gets the same sentence as he got, he was offered through the plea and if he's acquitted, the prosecutor gets punished for trying to coerce somebody who is innocent oh, wow. into pleading. So you got to put some skin yeah, in the game. That's right. Right? You're prepared to punish this other person on that strength of evidence. Are you prepared? Are you so sure on that evidence, Mr. or Mrs. Prosecutor, that mm. you're willing to be punished if this evidence isn't as strong as you say it is? Mm. So put some skin in the game wow. for the people who are exercising authority. Again, like this is just one idea, but I think that there's things we could do that would protect against this risk, this real risk of coercing particularly poor people who are the people who are getting held prior to trial, um, who can't make bail and who don't, can't afford a lawyer to protect against the real risk of innocent people being coerced into guilty pleas. Wow. So most of our listeners are probably not lawyers. We're not lawyers. Mm. What would you say, like, what actions can we take, just like your average person, yep. average citizen? Yep. What can they take to make sure that justice is, is um, you know, is it administered? Yeah, so I think, I think three things. Uh, number one, I, I think you should think differently, right? Part of being sanctified as Christians is a renewal of the mind, right? Thinking differently. Thinking not as a Republican, as a Democrat, not as a left or as a right, but thinking like a Christian, what does scripture say mm. about justice? And also sort of, you know, thinking differently, hopefully as a result of my book in part, thinking differently about the facts. Maybe you didn't know the, some of the facts. So I think thinking differently about justice, hopefully educating oneself about the facts. Number two, I'd say speak differently about it. Mm. Um, you, know, we, we, you know, we say things... You know, we talk about being tough on crime. You know, I want us to talk about loving our neighbor. I want us to talk differently about this. Um, I don't want us to joke about prison rape as Christians because it's not funny. Sure. It's as wrong if it's in a dorm room, a dark alley, or a prison cell, mm. right? And that's the type of thing that we joke about as sort of like, oh, you know, prison, that's what they, they're going to get what they have right. coming. Nobody yeah. has that coming. Mm. Nobody's got that coming. We should, we should talk differently about this. We should talk differently to our kids about this, about this topic. And, I, and I'd say, you know, the last thing is that we should vote differently uh, about this. And I mean, when I say vote, I mean vote as a voter, like in an election. I mean vote as a juror. If you're a juror, 
You're one of 12 in the United States. A jury verdict must be unanimous to convict someone. Uh, you can do great good by preventing injustice by saying, you know what, that's a one witness case. That's, we're not morally authorized to convict. I'm not going to convict. Interesting. Um, you can vote differently as a voter. I mean, the nice thing about criminal justice is you can be a one issue voter. Because yeah. your DA has got one issue <laughs> that you're voting yeah. on. <laughs> Right there's a, there's some of your judges that you elect are are particularly criminal court judges. You got one issue you're voting on for that judge, and so um, you don't have to worry about what that that DA's economic policy is or what their foreign policy is or in a lot of instances even what their view on important issues like abortion are. What's their view on criminal justice? Are they are they prepared to do God's justice? Are they prepared to exercise their authority in His image? Um, and so you can vote as a juror, you can vote as a voter uh, differently. You can think differently as a Christian, and you can talk differently about this topic. I was able to, uh, recently able to sit in on a trial uh, last year. Yeah. It was cool to see, like, you know, just how the system actually works. Yeah. And we deliberated, like, a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah, because we, you know, we weren't unanimous at yeah. first, so. But, you know, I mean, a lot of people, they're like, you know, how can I get out of jury duty? No. <laughs> don't, don't, I mean, seriously, as a Christian, if you don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Right. And if they're it's not true, a Christian, they're going to yeah. do less justice than you're going to do. Right. They're going to do a lot. Right? Don't try to get out of jury duty by, you know, m you know making up some, some answer to a question that makes the defense or the prosecutor think you're biased. Why are you going in there biased? Mm. That's good. Right? Go in there and say, I'm here, to, I'm here to consider the evidence and consider it fairly. I got no prejudgment for anybody. And go in there and do God's justice. Mm. Wow. That's good. That's good. So I think Romans 13, you know, uh, the government is given as God's sword of, uh, for justice. Uh, you know, in that time period, we're looking at Rome and these, you know, this, this imperial sort of system. Today, we live in this democracy where we actually have a voice. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, I think Russell Moore said something like, you know, we are Rome. Or something to that effect once yeah. of like, you know, why, why is it that we speak out? Well, it's because we actually have a voice yeah. in the government. You know, we yeah. actually have a voice in the say of how things go Yeah, and I jury. Just say, I'd say on that, like moral philosophers refer to that idea as the idea of moral proximity. In other words, my obligation is to love everyone. Mm -hmm. But my ability as a finite person to love everyone is limited. Yeah. I can't, I, and so I have to decide where can I, in my finiteness, yeah. love? And what, what moral philosophers and Christian ethicists have identified is that scripture teaches that our obligation, our first obligation is to love those who are in moral proximity to us. That could be closeness physically, but that also could be relationally. So my obligation to intervene and help you, like let's say someone's assaulting you when we walk out the front door, well, I'm here. So I have a different moral obligation to help you than when I'm living in Vienna. I don't have, a, I don't have the same obligation to jump up in my car from Virginia and drive up here because I'm not physically present. But if I'm physically present, that changes my moral obligation. Yeah. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. He didn't, his right. obligation was to help the man he came across physically, not the man who all the people robbed, who you know, he never, whose path he never crossed. Mm. But I also have an obligation sometimes because of my relationship. I have a relationship with government officials. The relationship is I conferred on them power. I didn't confer authority. God gave them the authority. But I gave them power. I handed them the sword. Now, God told them how they can use it, mm -hmm. but I gave it to them. And I have an obligation to stop them yeah. because I gave it to them, because I have that democratic relationship yeah. with them, because I have that voter official, elected official relationship with them. I have a moral obligation to intervene when they are abusing their power. It's good. Where can people get your book? When is it released? I can find you. Uh, <laughs> Not creepily find you. You can find, well, first you can find me. I have a website, uh, matthew-martins.com. You can, uh, if you uh, have trouble finding that on Google, just go to my Twitter handle, at martinsmat, at uh, martinsmat1. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. My book is coming out November 7th from Crossway. You can get it on Crossway's website. Pre-order right now. You can pre-order it on Amazon. My copy is pre-ordered. I'm looking <laughs> forward to reading it. So, Me too. Read his book. Yeah. 
I'm actually yeah. really encouraged. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can put that in church. Oh, no, for budget. real. It's like, it's, it's kind of a hefty book too, right? It is 356 pages. So I, I'd originally, um, Crosso is very gracious. I contracted to write 65,000 words. I wrote 140,000. Um, they were very gracious to publish all of it. So we'll read it. We will think differently. We will become better jurors. Better voters. Speak, speak differently. Speak differently, right? And that'll make us yeah. vote Think differently, differently right. speak differently, vote differently. That's, right. yeah. cool. That's what you, you can do. Thank you for your labor. So I'll just read for you briefly the last uh, portion from one of the last chapters in my book where I talk about what you can do differently. The first and perhaps most important thing you can do when it comes to criminal justice is to think differently about it. The Apostle Paul describes our sanctification as springing from a new way of thinking. We're to be transformed in our actions by a renewal of our minds, a change in our mindset. Stop thinking, quote, they're animals. Instead, think like a Christian. Remember that those accused and even those convicted are people, fellow humans made in God's image. Stop thinking, quote, if you can't do the time, then don't do the crime. Instead, think like a Christian. Ask yourself whether the time in prison to which we are consigning people aligns with the severity of the offense. Stop thinking that simply because someone has been accused, they must be guilty. Instead, think like a Christian. Remember the proverbial wisdom that every accuser seems right until their case gets tested. Stop thinking that we should be, quote, tough on crime. Instead, think like a Christian. Recall that we must judge impartially and sentence proportionally as we image our Heavenly Father who does so. Stop thinking that public defenders are morally compromised merely by defending the accused. Instead, think like a Christian. Recognize that accurately distinguishing the guilty from the innocent requires a process in which both sides of the question can effectively present their case. Stop thinking that prosecutors are above reproach. Instead, think like a Christian. Remember that scripture speaks at length about the injustices of rulers and that accuracy demands accountability when the wrongdoer is the state. Stop thinking that jokes about prison rape are humorous. Instead, think like a Christian. Remember that God hates the wickedness of sexual assault, whether it occurs in a college dorm, a back alley, or behind bars. And stop thinking that none of this is your problem. Instead, think like a Christian. Realize that Christ's command to love your neighbor applies to you and that you have a moral obligation to those affected by the government policies you support. Thanks for listening to the Stoop Sessions. Be sure to catch us next time. As One Hope exists to build healthy churches in the inner city, check us out and connect at www.onehope.gives.